Good afternoon and welcome to my eco-activist radio show. So, if it's your first time tuning in, my name is Leah Wyman and I'm a second year SD and IR student here at the University of St. Andrews. Um, so welcome and thank you for tuning in. Um, today I'm joined in the studio by uh, quite a number of guests, <laughs> um, so that's very exciting. Firstly by members um, of the UNA Society St. Andrews, so Delapi, Jorin, and Julia, um, as well as my friend Elsa, who's in the Environment Subcommittee, together with me. And we're going to discuss um, a few topics around um, climate change and the UN with two big questions um, around, you know, why is international cooperation for climate change so important? Um, and what is the UN doing at the moment to address climate change? And, um, you know, how do we as citizens and as students fit in and what can we do? Um, and yeah, furthermore, we're also going to hear more details about the St. Andrews United Nations Association, um, how it formed and, um, you know, goals and missions. But before we dive into those questions, um, can I ask my guests today to introduce themselves and quickly say something about them? Um, so thank you very much for the introduction, Leah. Hello, everyone. My name is Julia, and I am the chair of the UNA branch here in St. Andrews. And on the right, I have Jureen, who is the president of the United Nations Association St. Andrews Society, and Dipali, who is the events manager at our society. Okay, yeah, just um, if you quickly want to say something as well about yourself, what you study. Oh, yeah, so um, I am a fourth year student studying international relations. I'm very interested in the United Nations and uh, also encouraging the grassroots movements here in St. Andrews. Hi, I'm Jureen. Um, I'm studying biology and economics, and I'm a second year, and yeah. Hi, I'm Dipali, and I'm a first year, and I study social anthropology. Great. Um, Elsa? Yeah, I, well, I'm Elsa, <laughs> and I'm a third year student studying uh, a joint degree in human geography and sustainable development, but I'm very interested in international relations as well, although I don't know as much as... Um, like people in the UNA here. <laughs> yeah, so um, that's great. So before, I think we'd be good to start before we dive into some of the questions, you know, about climate change and international cooperation, dive into, you know, um, UNA telling us a little bit about themselves and, you know, what you do, what's your society, how did it start and form? Yeah, Yulia, do you want to go for it? <laughs> sure. So um, United Nations Association St. Andrews is a very new society. We are very proud of what we did since September because that's when it was established. Um, what our study is about, well, as you could have read between the lines, it's talking about a lot about <laughs> the UN. Um, what we do is basically supporting and encouraging the grassroots movements here in St. Andrews. How do we do that? Well, we prioritize discussing about the global problems that are facing the world today and how students can participate in that. And obviously that relates to what the UN does. Um, so we are also promoting awareness about the UN as well as talking about the goals and values that the UN implements in their work as well. And uh, most importantly, um, well, for the past years, these are obviously SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of our priorities is working on various SDGs depending on the focus of uh, the semester of all the projects that we do. Um, so in a nutshell, um, what we have done in the past semester is a lot of collaborations with different societies, um, and that allows us also to expand our work, expand um, also the goals that we achieve, so depend, depending on the SDGs. Um, so it's pretty much very general, but then there's so much space for collaboration that we are very excited to keep on working with the student societies here in St. Andrews and implementing different SDGs as well as different goals of the UN. Yeah, great. Anything... Um 
you two like to add about, um, you know, what are you planning your initiatives for or plans that you look, know looking forward, maybe? Yeah, so um, right now we're working with Sensecurity Society. Um, we're collaborating with them to try to bring um, more about um, bringing the Western perspective to um, issue, like to global issues, uh, sorry, the Eastern South Asian perspective to global issues because St. Andrews is heavily um, relying on like Western policies. And so we're trying to um, bring speaker events um, regarding that topic and we're also thinking of bringing our own um, speaker event as well regarding refugees during the Brexit crisis so that's something to look forward to in April yeah maybe I don't know if you any of you want to like maybe personally share just a little story about how you got involved and why this is something you're passionate about <laughs> okay so for me um, mine was quite simple I just sort of signed up to the UNA um, during Freshers Fair <laughs> um, first week, and then um, yeah, I just um, th I heard that they were looking for kind of people to run for the committee, and so I just I had like a short interview with them actually, um, because I thought um, I wanted to be events manager, and yeah, I ended up <laughs> doing decent cool. enough, I guess. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so um, I'm events manager through that. Yeah, yeah. and with me it was, um, do you know, so Dr. Gary Don, who's the head of um, UN House of Scotland, she came to give. Um, a lecture last year in sustainable development so I just saw her lecture and I, she was talking about how she wanted to revive the United Nations Association because this society existed five years ago but apparently died so <laughs> we're here to revive it <laughs> and so I sent her an email and then she connected me to Yulia and that's how we started and um, if I may also for me the UNA Society is something very very exciting because I've been working in the um, student with the student societies for the past four years and um, obviously when Dr. Don came to St. Andrews, um, we started to work on the brand new project, although the branch did exist a couple of years ago. Um, there has been a lot of, um, uh, Dr. Don has been mentioning that she would really like to revive the branch or perhaps even to reestablish it, so the correct rebranding and everything. Um, so I saw a lot of potential in that, and I was really excited to just help with the perhaps the experience I've had in the past, um, as well as just to you know, help create a very strong committee and start planning events and then going with a full swing, semester by semester, mm -hmm. growing our audience, growing also our scope, um, the collaborations. And uh, yeah, it's just something I'm really, really delighted that I can actually contribute to. So. Yeah, I'm so glad that it did start out because I do remember that talk in SD last year as well about mm -hmm. the UN House. But um, um, actually referring to that, do you have any like links with it when you started establishing with links with the UN House Scotland? or um, collaborations or something? Yeah, so we're actually a direct branch of the UN House of Scotland. So we're not just a student society. So we have the student society part, but we're also a branch. So whatever we do here, we have to go um, and report back to the UN House of Scotland, and they're the ones supporting us as well. So the next event we're having, the one in April about refugee crisis, they're the ones who have been um, helping us create this event. Oh, wow, that's, yeah. that's amazing. So. <laughs> really looking beyond, you know, just what's happening here, but really tying that into what's happening with the UN House Scotland. Um, should we, I don't know, does anyone want to quickly give a definition how you UN you, how are you UN House, because it's obviously a civic society um, organisation rather than the UN itself, how that differs? I don't know if you quickly just want to know um, anything about how to... Yeah, so the United Nations, so there's the big United Nations, right? And then there's the United Nations Association, and then under the United Nations Association is the UN House of Scotland. And then we're a branch of the UN House of Scotland. So we're very, like, it's very much like a big tree. So we're just a 
part of a, like a leaf of the fig tree of the United Nations. I think that's the best way I can explain it. Yeah, just to add to what Doreen said, um, there are different branches across Scotland and across England as well. Mm-hmm. So um, we would partner with Glasgow, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, even Dundee. So there are pretty much, um, there are many other UNA branches, um, but also ours is we like to underline we're working with St. Andrew specifically, so it's a society. Mm. Um, and we are really grateful to have not only the support of the UN House Scotland, but also Students Association, so that we also encourage students to participate in um, what UN House does. So not only in Edinburgh, but also most importantly in St. Andrews. Um, and yes, obviously UN House Scotland uh, does give us support, um, perhaps even like in speakers, or like um, perhaps some context that they could provide us with, or perhaps um, any collaborations with the NGOs. Um, so they're really, really helpful in establishing and connecting to other people. Okay, so maybe now we can move into a little bit, like every one of us quickly saying, and maybe we can start with Elsa, but you know, uh, your opinion, why you think international cooperation for climate change is so important? So, yeah. Well, um, start off. <laughs> um, lately I've, I've been reading a lot about um, both voluntary and involuntary migration and how that ties into environmental issues and how environmental issues can be um, driving factors in, in migration. But that is often not very easy to to see because it's so intertwined with, with other factors. And um, the complex relationship between uh, climate change and human mobility and um, security increasingly after the end of um, Cold War has increased this um, need for international cooperation in very complex uh, issues. And I feel like... Um, Everything is just so interconnected that there is, yeah. and like, even if you like, um, sec- for security reasons um, and for just like well-being reasons and political reasons, there is such a massive need for international uh, cross-border collaboration in all of these issues. That is just yeah, something essential. like obviously uh, <laughs> that has to happen. Um, and has to be continuous as well because everything is more fragmented like all the crises are more fragmented and it's more difficult to know what is going to happen in the future yeah do you want to carry on what do you think what your your opinions are on um, why you think personally international cooperation is so important well i think i think just fundamentally given the fact that climate change is such an international phenomenon and it's so ubiquitous and you know we all f- kind of um, kind of can see the impacts of it globally um so we kind of we need a response that kind of matches that kind of that that scale but i think um equally um so yesterday in my social anthropology tutorial we were talking about climate change um anthropology and um, in our discussion, we were talking about the ways in which um, we in the developed world, kind of the way in which climate change kind of um, has come to like, has, how we come to understand it and, and kind of the role it plays in our lives. And we were talking about kind of how, even though we're so aware of the impacts and kind of the, um, the gravity of the problem, how kind of enactment of um, changes is um, why it's so difficult and why. Um, yeah, why is it that kind of that frictional kind of tension? But and um, we were talking about how even though um, international um, cooperation is obviously very fundamental, and we need that kind of we need to have that um, institution 
to be able to make kind of recommendations globally. We're also talking about the way in which we also need, um, so for example, the UN um, also needs to be kind of um, to adapt um, their kind of their agenda and their policies um, to like local and regional kind of um, levels too, to be able to um, kind of suit the context in which they operate as well. Good. I don't know if you guys want to add anything. Yeah, I mean, like this is going to be like kind of like shifting to a different issue, but in the same line of um, climate change. But like, there is definitely a need for imp international cooperation when it comes to um, like solving issues because at the end of the day, everyone's going to feel the effects of it, feel the con consequences of it. So, for example, the fact that um, we're having we're using so much fossil fuels, you know, and then everyone's trying to. Lower, um, lower the use of fossil fuels. But then, if countries such as, it's okay to call out countries such as like Russia or Venezuela, they're still not wanting. To, they're very reluctant to move towards um, renewable energy. And at the end of the day, that's causing air pollution. And then you can feel the detrimental effects in Beijing and um, Delhi, where they're having um, so many. Um, there's a surge of children with respiratory illnesses. So there is. It's everyone's linked together at the end of the day, and that's why there is a need for um, international cooperation when it comes to climate change. Absolutely, and I would also like I would like to add that the more stakeholders are involved in collaboration and working on the same goals, um, I think the more effective it becomes to to an extent that, as you as you know, there are certain goals that are being set for each year for each decade. There are reports that are being issued all the time. There's constant monitoring. And that all, although we're grateful for their existence, that there's so much, um, you know, that the, with the help of the tools of the global governance that all these things do exist, they always need a lot of improvement. And um, it's really important, I guess, for um, the public and private sectors to work together to understand how not only can, let's say, higher, um, better in environment and then cleaner environment um, how it can be achieved. Not only that is important, but also understanding how the public and the private sectors can work towards it and have and benefit the peoples as well as uh, make the businesses more sustainable. Um, so it's really important to also lobby um, in this sense and also watch how the two sectors are working together. And I think it's really important for the civil society as well to take a very active part in that, um, to be um, aware of what is going on, um, even starting from the Scottish Parliament and from the bill that's being worked on right now, which is in stage one, um, on the, um, the betterment of the environment, um, as well as active participation. So, And that's what we pretty much, the UNA, do. Um, we do want to promote awareness, but we also want to invite um, the students, um, local population, to actively participate in, in, in different debates and uh, even just witnessing the parliamentary debates, right? Um, and seeing how we can influence, how, how we, the individuals, the citizens as well, we, how we can impact the decision-making processes nationally and globally as well. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good introduction, you know, moving into um, what we want to discuss um, now about, you know, what is the what is the UN doing to address climate change and how um, how people um, such as uh, students such as us are getting involved and how people can get involved, <coughs> but then also discussing things like the UN SDG goals. Um, so yeah, in my opinion, just to conclude this uh, little section a bit, um, I you know I think it's um, with especially with such a global issue with such as climate change, it is not enough for just um, one. 
for just one entity to say, are we doing something? That's always great. Then if um, someone is, goes forward and sets the example and does things, but in the end, because we're such a closed system within our world, it's so important that we are actually looking for um, solutions together. And um, yeah, that's, I think, also a little bit what I'd like to discuss further today is, you know, how how can organizations such as the UN move it, that forward and, um, you know, if they can move that forward. And if um, any of the listeners want to add to the discussion, I also just want to mention that um, on the Star Radio um, website, you can log on into the Buzzbox and you can um, type in any questions or discussion points that you would like to add. Um, yes, so now we're going to address the question, um, you know, what kind of... Um, role does the UN play with um, regards to um, addressing climate change and um, what kind of initiatives are going on in the, um, the UN to um, address climate change and address uh, environmental concerns? Um, well, so the UN has a, U, um, a UN environmental program, and so this is um, a global environmental authority. And so um, the UN EP, as it's known, um, is responsible for setting global agendas, um, it does work in advocacy um, in regards to environment, and it works to implement um, in the environmental dimension when it comes to sustainable development um, within the work of the UN. Um, and so, so they play a part in like research, and so they provide things like data for policymakers. Um, and yeah, so recently, one of the things that they've been doing um, is the hashtag Solve Different campaign, which is um, a campaign that works to kind of grapple with the importance of public consumption and how, um, as consumers um, of the market, um, how we can feel and intensify um, environmental problems, especially with regards to climate change. But yeah, um, and then there's also um, obviously a key component of our um, society is obviously the Sustainable Development Goals, which is also known as the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. And so these are 17 goals, um, which are quite broad, um, and they work towards sustainable development, you know, as um, But six of them are explicitly to do with the environment, um, and Goal 13 in particular um, is... Working towards to working towards combating climate change and its impact that it has already. But yeah, yeah. I think especially for um, what's important when looking at organisations like the UN is their goal seventeen. You know, par finding partnership for the goals. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a really important one as well. Um, but then that just the inter the integration because if I think when you look at the goals that were before the sustainable development goals, um, they're people often kind of sometimes look at just one goal or a second goal and um, I think personally it's quite you know important trying to look at you know how how can one issue or one solution mm -hmm. try and address as many um, goals as possible um, yeah. yeah so what do you think do you think um, how you know how, how effective do you think is that with like them setting up the UN the UN sustainable development goals but then you know how how does that lead to initiatives? How um, how can that lead to cooperation? What do you think? I mean, compared to like the last Millennium Development Goals, the yeah. Sustainable Development Goals is um, much more um, detailed, and there's more goals than before. And the way what I admire about the way United Nations does it is that um, yes, they're a big organization, but then they it's like they'll ha they have the regional office, they have the headquarters, then the regional office, then the country offices. So there's really um, 
like it's they're really trying to implement the SDG goals like in the field you know they're really going there and getting it done and I think um, and of course like there are some flaws to the system um, where because it's so big for example things are not getting done as quickly or efficiently as we um, the public would like it to um, um, happen but however um, I think because there's so um, the fact that there's these there's the there's the goals and there's so many countries that have agreed to this goal um, it just really encourages countries to like move forward and yeah I think that's the way the UN does it it's quite good in that sense and just to add what, to what Jureen said um, I think the the agenda in 2030 is a really important is really important step to aspire to something bigger because obviously we are facing one of the greatest problems especially nowadays um, because of the increasing numbers of um, inequality as well as still increasing numbers of uh, people in developing countries who cannot benefit from the services that we can benefit from and in Western Europe and you know in North America um, so it's really important um, also in this agenda um, what has been emphasized is to unite people to collaborate and to make this collaboration effective um, so um, as we know as of 9th of April 2018 uh, there were 175 parties that ratified the Paris Agreement, and um, there are, in fact, 167 countries which have announced their uh, nationally, national determinist strategies about how they're going to fulfill with these goals, uh, with the SDGs that have been set, and uh, how every single country is going to make some steps uh, or somehow contribute to achieving that goal together. And it is really important um, for the UN today to keep up this work, to um, reinforce the, the norms that unite all the member states together. And um, this is why we think that um, in the branches like the UNA, it's also important to work with the civil society to not only appeal to the member states and to the governments, but also to local society. Mm -hmm. And what, can we, what we can do locally, locally to um, co uh, contribute to the national government, so, uh, to the national government framework, let's say like the Scottish one, um, for the goals that we set nationally. Um, and, and it's really, really important also for, for this agenda to emphasize how these UN goals, which we can look at and they look so big, and th these numbers, they, they may scare us because how much should be done is, is incredible. It's an incredible amount of work. But what really matters is localizing these goals, L asking ourselves how can we do something in our everyday lives to contribute to these goals, and then work with our governments and then work with the UN um, to see how we monitor that, how, what we can do more, what we haven't done before, and be more accountable for the change that is also going on. You know. Yeah. So I think leading on to that, I'm really glad you mentioned the Paris Agreement. What do you think? You know, what is the? Do you know more about what the UN does to? Um, yeah, in terms of tr um, bringing about the Paris Agreement or sort of pushing for action within the certain member states, and do you think you know there's more that can be done, or um, yeah? It's so hard because like politically, there's um, you know like in the Paris Agreement, like Russia, like um, like there is some reluctancy in trying to pursue this agree uh, to make sure this agreement comes into reality, um, and so. Just it's just politically really hard, but I think with the way the world has like, I think the public mindset has become has been changing over the past few years as we've been feeling the more the um, the effects of um, climate change, 
And so, I don't know, it's quite, it's really hard to implement it mm -hmm. in reality because not all countries agree with the same um, values. So if that could be changed, then I think it's realistic that we could make change faster than we expect it to be. But um, I mean, it's great because there is progress being made. The fact that there is discussion in the first place, the fact that um, it the meeting takes place like quite often, like the, um, the so it is, there is progress for sure, but then in reality, it's quite difficult mm -hmm. with some challenges. Yeah, especially since in 2017, how Donald Trump announced that he wanted America to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. I think um, given also the, obviously the size of um, the US population and um, the corporations within the US and all that is going to have, is bound to have um, a, a massive negative effect um, on the work of the, um, the UN and the Paris Agreement. But I think, um, as Jiren said, um, there have also been like promising kind of um, indications such as um, in 2017, how the French environment minister announced a plan to ban all petrol and diesel vehicles in France um, by 2040 um, as, um, as part of the Paris Agreement. So, um, so obviously, I think um, the fact that the framework that the Paris Agreement um, provides um, is kind of inspiring um, nations to take the initiative. Yeah, and even though like political leaders might be um, like reluctant to make these changes, it seems like I feel like the public is like more willing at this point. So I think there is a shift, and mm -hmm. I think because of that, hopefully, that's going to change. I also feel like after Donald Trump said that um, U.S. is going to withdraw, there was a massive kind of uh, protest by major cities, like big cities, that where the mayors decided that. Even if nationally, um, like nationally, um, the it wouldn't be um, followed. Then, on a, a smaller scale, there would be bigger initiatives uh, and really ambitious initiatives. And there are um, uh, groups of cities that are connected, and they try to implement those, um, like leadership groups, and um, <coughs> just like try to like decentralize the power which is quite massive yeah so do you then think you know in order to push things like the Paris Agreement I think a problem with it is that at some point is that while nations have signed it there's obviously no um, commitment or like, there is no there's no one there's no one to police it which I mean is generally a problem within everything in this world in a yeah, there's no consequences. Yeah. that's yeah. why <laughs> so but do you think that maybe something that there could be something done to sort of um, really hold nations accountable in the Paris Agreement to do something I think that's absolutely a very good point Leah because um, that the whole dilemma as you mentioned in global governance is that there's no global policeman who's going yeah. to force us to comply with the provisions that um, the states um, kind of signed up for. Um, but um, yes, I think it is really important to look at the Article 13 or the Paris Agreement of transparency and also um, accountability. And um, sadly, as it is, the, pro the problem with the other institutions also within the UN and non-UN institutions is that the states have to regularly um, comply uh, with the things that they ratify, but as well as um, be, ho be held accountable. And um, your question has been, you asked the question about 
how we can ensure that our states um, actually comply with what they yeah. ratified. Um, and um, here I think it's really important to, um, first of all, accept the fact that not all states are democratic in the first place um, to be um, asked to be held accountable. So obviously, um, if we look at the, if we look at all the parties, we cannot say that all of them are democracies, right? Um, so also, every single state has their own um, transparency level, um, has their own accountability level. And I think the most important step is to recognize it and to perhaps assist the countries that are struggling with accountability um, and, and put them perhaps in uh, uh, some working groups. Uh, so let's say some um, countries which are better at accountability, which have uh, high levels of democracy and civil society participation, uh, to see how they can share their experiences with those uh, developing countries that are struggling with that. Um, on the other hand, um, in terms of the UN, um, what's really important is to um, set, keep on setting these goals, keep on pressuring, um, because um, another key problem in global governance is that uh, states want to be the part of the club. States want to um, be seen as they do participate in um, the Paris Agreement, let's say, right? But do they actually comply with it? Um, well, when the states are seen that they participate in it, but they don't comply, and when it's being accentuated that states <coughs> do not comply, this may also force them to finally comply. So that's more of a um, pressure that the member states could exert. On the other hand, um, and that's why we come back again to UNA St. Andrews, is that there's a civil society <coughs> that can always demand um, accountability from um, from their government and from what is being done. Um, and it is exactly thanks to these different movements, these different branches around the world, um, that uh, the UNA can um, mobilize civil society and actually demand, um, demand knowledge about the actions that have been taken and how this can be improved. Yeah, thank you very much. I think that's a very ex excellent point to be making about um, about how you know. Yes, we don't have a global. We don't have a policeman to look at, at to enforce the Paris Agreement or to force any agreement really or any um, way a state acts. But um, they want to be seen to. You know, there is some sort of image that states try to maintain. Some sort of. Um, yeah, so there is a sort of certain certain sense of accountability, and. Um, I think what really helps is with civic society organizations and um, with we, what we as citizens can really do is say, um, really show, you know, this is what, look trans look into the transparency of governments and um, find out, you know, what is what are they really doing? What do we want them to do? And um, sort of really putting the word out there. So I think what is also really important, what people sometimes forget is that, you know, we can't just rely on UN just, UN existing and suddenly saying oh that's how it will happen but we as society need to say okay we're responsible for this as well we need to point out and um, to our government the points that is lacking the points where um, which we want um, them to address because then that will also report back internationally oh, what this country is doing and in that way I think that's a really strong point on how um, countries can get each other to do more and um, I think that really does start with um, civic level and people saying this is what we want uh, and this is what we're going for. Yeah, I think building trust between different levels is very important. Yeah, so um, before I think next what I would like to discuss a little bit about you know how um, because obviously the sustainable development goals are quite varied and how we can look at you know how in environmental rights or human rights also really inter interconnect with environmentalism and how we can sort of connect that with sort of 
all sorts of issues in the world. The next question that we're going to address is, you know, what the intersection between human rights and environmentalism is. So Elsa, would you like to start on your um, opinion? What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in, um, in this um, human rights environment nexus. And lately I've been reading a lot about um, the relationship between climate change and human mobility and political conflicts. And and the complex relationship between all those has received increased policy um, increased attention in policy and planning uh, for three reasons. The first is that worries concerning the risk posed by anthropogenic climate change have increased in the past 20 years. Um, and secondly, there has been growing awareness that environmental degradation has far-reaching consequences for human well-being and health. Um, and third, at the end of Cold War, um, the end of Cold War meant that security scholars began taking um, an interest in broader influences um, on international security and including environmental factors. Um, and in 1990, the IPCC uh, released its first synthesis report where the authors warned of the growing potential for mig uh, migration and environmental migrants in the future. Um, and specifically, the report suggested that changes in temperature and precipitation could lead to human population displacement and migration due to shifts in vector-borne diseases, loss of houses due to hazards, um, hazard events like floods and mudslides, changes in availability of water, energy, and uh, food or employment, uh, coastal flooding, and severe drought, um, drought. And security researchers generally agree that climate change and other environmental factors can indeed act as threat multipliers in countries and regions where political tensions and instability are already strong. And the challenge lies in the difficulty of isolating environmental factors from other factors um, in the causation of displacement and conflict. Um, and this is because climate change leads to environmental degradation and conflicts over resources or and general instability and it's just like a vicious cycle that continues and it's very context specific and each region has their like specific problems yeah i think it's important to look at how um you know the sdgs really do address a variety of goals and sort of seeing how sustainable development sort of links them all mm -hmm. um because with a world you know with a more unstable world with rising sea levels and with more extreme weather events, but also more scarce resources, there's obviously more competition for those resources and for um, survival. So that then, once again, you know, creates a cycle of enhancement of, you know, then further enhancing climate change and um, further enhancing competition for something. So, um, yeah, I think like, it's really important. For example, in India, um, two thirds of Indians are farmers and they're very dependent on um, Himalayan glacial mm -hmm. runoff and monsoon rains and the region's hydrological system is sliding to instability because of climate change um, and the monsoon variability is increasing and the rains are either too um, either they come too late or are too light or they come heavily all at once and that like variability disturbs the patterns um, and some areas get no rain at all and for that reason people suddenly they don't get the crops they are meant to get at the end of the year and um, combined with uh, bad land management and inadequate, inadequate attention to water harvesting, um, the general direction is toward increased desertification despite more rainfall. Um, and when the rain comes and how it falls is almost as important as if it falls at all. Um, so this has very bad um, 
this whole um, climate change and its impact on this monsoon variability is bad for Indian farmers. And um, and it has negative effects on crop yields beyond what aggregate and average precipitation data can reveal. Yeah, I don't know if you two, if you want to add something to um, to as well. What do you think? You know, how does an, yeah. do human rights and environment intersect, and how can we maybe work to combine those more as well? Yeah, I think so. Following up on what Elsa was saying, um, one of the things that kind of um, I wanted to point out perhaps is that I am. Um, is kind of the location and the profile of those most affected um, right now due to climate change. And so, for example, um, I know about um, climate change refugees in Papua New Guinea who, uh, because of climate change, um, they've suffered food shortages to the extent that um, (coughs) they've had to move to different islands um, and just, like, completely... um, leaving them vulnerable to um, an array of different other kind of human rights um, um, kind of violations. And I think so, um, and often um, the trend is right now, the the developing world um, is most vulnerable to the climate change. And this is important in terms of human rights because um, it's a developing world which um, lacks kind of the key and crucial structures and institutions needed to protect um, citizens' human rights in cases of um, climate change um, problems. So, for example, um, in the case of climate change causing displacement, and from there on, the kind of the secondary effects of having these kind of adverse weather conditions or kind of food shortages cause um, additional problems of kind of human trafficking, um, all the like. And so, yeah, because um, climate change is such a... Um, such a ubiquitous and just such a it really kind of right now um it's it's um penetrating kind of our um our societies kind of socio-culturally as well so yeah uh, i think they probably did a good job of covering that um yeah i mean other than that like i mean it's just everywhere isn't it like just the fact that like climate change affects like like you said, like Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, there's having so much, there's having so many floods, and there's just like the the people who are suffering at the end of the day are people who don't, um, who are struggling already in the first place. So, it is important that that change has to be made because at the end of the day, it is a human rights issue, and therefore there has to be more policies to, um, let to fix that. And to even add to that. Um in the international law, um, international um, refugee, um, climate refugee is not doesn't make a person being a climate refugee doesn't make a person um, eligible for refugee status. So those people who suffer from um, climate like environmentally induced, those people who could be considered and are often seen as environmental refugees are not actually refugees in the legal term. Like they are not, they don't get. They are not qualified yeah. Um, yeah. for the legal refugee status, and even if they were, in many Asian countries, uh, many Asian countries uh, in southeastern Asia haven't ratified the 1954 um, refugee convention. So they their rights are already um, they, yeah. they aren't as protected. Yeah, I guess that that brings us on a whole new topic of environmental mm-hmm. migration, which is complex in itself mm-hmm. as well. Because you know, even people if they could move from if from island from little islands you know you can move to the mainland but then there's sometimes you know it's difficult because they're not 
they don't belong to they don't belong to that area and they do identify very closely with the land that they live on and once they have to go back to the mainland they might be uh, they might be ethical clashes with people oh, from like different if you, groups yeah. if you want to um, move with your whole family how can you do that yeah so i think it's really important to really look at how climate change is such a broad issue and really touches on all, and every aspect of our lives but um, also sort of seeing yes they are Obviously, there's so many issues around it and so many ways to address address it. But um, yeah, I guess that leads me to the question: You know, what would you say? What gives you hope for 2019 and for the future and the world in general? I think for me, it's definitely the um, this um, increased role of non-state actors. So it's easier to get involved in um, in associations such as UNA. And it's very easy, well, depending on your location, of course, but it's um, in Finland, for example, it's very easy to go and listen to a public lecture uh, about crisis management and like human rights and just get more informed and more knowledgeable on these issues. And then you also feel like you've got more power to actually at least try to take action um, and then bring that to the next level with, um, like, for example, with all these climate um, strikes. Now it's... Um, easier to feel that you're doing your best um, and just building trust between different levels and actors to both prevent and resolve conflicts and include um, though um, include different people in decision making and try to be open and um, open-minded and resolve conflicts before they emerge I mean like I think like that's of, of course, like I completely agree with that, and it's it's amazing because like things are changing for sure, and I think there is more, there is an increase in like public knowledge, and I think people are taking actions. Like I know this is like very micro kind of level st- um talk, but then um, for example, like lots of people are turning into veganism, like v- veganism, and like you know like the for example like. The other day, I saw that the buses in Edinburgh, like they had like vegan posters all over them, like they encourage veganism. I think like even that small scale kind of stuff that just shows that um, we are all change, like we are all trying to make the change. Mm-hmm. And I think that compared to, I mean, it's just strange because like at the end of the day, like every generation has tried to make a change regarding climate change, you know. At the end, but then like nothing progressive has. I don't know. It's so pessimistic, but then you know. <laughs> Sorry, I was like, I'm a mood killer. But, I mean, I'm hopeful, but at the same time, like, I just would like, would like to see some progression a bit more quickly, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think and we all do, which is probably why yeah, there's so much frustrated. There's so much movement at the moment, luckily, as well. I think, like, right now, it's quite easy. Like, well, no, it's nothing is easy, but it's relatively easy to um, build that increased amount of. Um, like kind of empower other people and take action really fast and um, partially because of internet and social media it's Mm -hmm. easier to feel like you can connect with people from different places yeah and the speed is just amazing and Jiren didn't you go vegan for Uh, yeah I'm vegan for this month so yeah (laughs) yeah so that's something that's happening but yeah yeah like I think 
But at the same time, I'm also wondering whether this is just something that's happening in our circle. You know, there's so many people who have no access to internet, mm -hmm. who are um, not as privileged as we are, and their um, their life, like the way they see things, is completely different. And there's that's like a majority of the world's population at the end of the day. So I'm wondering. You know, even if we here are trying to make a change, there's still going to be an increase in plastic use at the end of the day. Where, um, mm -hmm. because at like for example, those in poverty in the Philippines, mm -hmm. they find it cheaper to buy those plastic cases, like the shampoo that are in small yeah. plastic cases, rather than buying a big yeah, shampoo I feel like bottle at once. Yeah. You know? yeah, although I think I need to add to that that you know, obviously, as the developing world. Or mm -hmm. Compared to the developing world, we as developed nations have accounted for most of greenhouse gases. So. We, we do have an increased responsibility to be the first ones to also make a change. And when we make a change, I think that also does lead on to other nations making a change. Yeah, I think it's very easy to say, you know, <laughs> oh, those nations in mm. some like developed nations, oh, they can't afford to like not use mm. plastic or whatever. But we actually have to really target some of the big corporations that are sending out this plastic. Exactly. Because, you know, what are these people going to do with all the plastic pollution that is sent to them? They don't have recycling. They can't really do anything with it. They can burn it. And that also affects their health. They don't have access to another to other things. So I yeah. think it's really important to say, you know, how can we as how can we push corporations to yeah. really And I think even that. in developing countries, the idea um, for a long time has been that development comes first, but now um, development comes first and then environment. But now those two are so interlinked that there is hope. Sustainable development. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but anyway, we're coming towards the end. I don't know if you two want to quickly add, you know, what gives you hope for 2019 and the world in general? Um, I think just generally, um, I feel like I can definitely feel um, kind of our generation kind of becoming, wanting to become more informed um, and kind of actively take, um, like, have play a role in making more sustainable and more conscious and responsible choices. Um, yeah, especially in like consumption, because like somehow, like you know, as growing up as a teenager, like even though I didn't um, necessarily actively engage with um, these issues, like I know not to like use plastic straws or I know not to buy certain you know facial washes. You know, it just it, it feeds into um, just. You just, I think, just being, yeah. I think individual action can give a lot of hope to you personally if you can see that, you know, you're doing the best you can, sort of being the example, but then also pushing bigger, um, getting involved in grassroots organisations mm -hmm. that push bigger change. Um, Julia, any closing words from you? <laughs> well, I think it utterly depends on us um, and what we do. Um, that's what I've always thought and believed in when it came to um, resolving any problems that we have locally as well as nationally and my hope for 2018 is perhaps a growing recognition in the mass media that there are imminent threats um, coming from today's globalized modern world um, and this really touches upon everyone and especially has some ripple effects to the, the areas where which we cannot reach the areas that we don't even know about sometimes. Um, and this means that, for instance, Scotland has to take um, actions. And that, obviously, as you mentioned, it means working with civil society. Um, and my hope would be um, working more closely with students and uh, students also being proactive and willing to um, improve the, the society that they work with, the environment where they live, 
Um, and yes, that, that would, for me, the biggest hope would be seeing St. Andrews as one of the leading, if not the most leading university um, in Scotland, um, on the forefront of making a change, contributing into um, improvement of our environment, and perhaps reaching out to other universities, other towns who uh, do not perhaps have the same vigor, um, the same ambition, um, and even experience. Um, so I do believe that our student community is very much capable of these things. Um, yeah, I think I've seen a lot of imp like improvement in the past year. So if this race is going to like if this is going to keep up, it, I'm, I'm very hopeful. Okay, so let's yeah. end on this hopeful <laughs> note. And um, thank you um, for all the listeners for tuning in and for joining, um, listening to our discussion on climate change and human rights on the UNA. Um, yeah, make sure to check out uh, my Facebook page, the Eco Activist Journeys, as well as the UNA Facebook page um, if you're interested in getting involved in their future events. Uh, thank you to Elsa, Duran, Delapi, Yulia. Thank you so much for joining you. It's been a great discussion. And um, I wish everyone a wonderful and productive weekend. And yes, be hopeful and change the world together. <laughs> thank you for okay. having us. Thank you, Lena. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.